Welcome to the Urban Hope Podcast. Today's sermon is from Exodus 21 through 14 and 18 through 20, called The Ten Commandments Do Not Commit Adultery from Noah Despinas. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Continuing in our series uh, on the Ten Commandments. Um, this morning I get the, the privilege to, to preach on uh, commandment number seven, which is uh, do not commit adultery. Uh, last week we took a break uh, from the sermon series, but we're back on track. Uh, as it is our custom here at Urban Hope, can you please stand as we read the Word of God? Uh, you are uh, using the Pew Bible. This passage uh, is on uh, page 72. Verse 1, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Verse 14, our passage for this morning. You shall not commit adultery. Go down to verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The grass withers, the 
flowers fade. Maybe seated. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine's uh, who lives in Houston and I, we started uh, meeting weekly on Zoom. Uh, we are currently working through a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. I know that book is pretty popular uh, around here, Urban Hope. Um, probably one of my favorite books. Uh, and highly encourage you to read it, if, especially if you're a man, if you have not already. Uh, but in the book, the author, his purpose his desire is to help uh, the Christian man understand that if you want to be godly, uh, you have to uh, learn uh, how to be disciplined, how to commit yourself uh, to, to, to being holy, to being like Christ. And so uh, throughout the book, he covers uh, different topics. And so each topic gets a chapter. In that chapter, uh, he begins the book uh, sort of expressing and, and kind of showing us the problem within that particular topic, at least in our culture. Then he gives us God's blueprint, his design for that particular topic. And then you get to uh, towards the end of the chapter and he saves a few pages for some practical application, suggestions. Uh, here are some things I suggest you uh, commit to if you want to truly live out what, is, what this means to be a godly man in this particular area. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we were uh, in the chapter that was on marriage. Uh, and so you get towards the end of the book, and he begins to outline some, some again, some, 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 some practicals, some tips. And he says, if you want to be a godly man as it relates to your marriage, one of the things you have to commit to is fidelity. It's fidelity, right? And so uh, my friend and I were just talking about that. And if you don't know what the word fidelity means, fidelity means simply faithfulness to a person. It just means being faithful. So if you want to be a godly man in your marriage, he says, you got to be committed to faithfulness. And I remember looking at my friend on Zoom and I was like, hey, if you were to call me one day and tell me that you cheated on your wife, I said, I'd be heartbroken. Uh, knowing me, I probably shed a few tears. I'd be really disappointed. I reassured him that we'd still be friends. I'd still love him, but I'd truly be heartbroken. And I said, the reason why is because once you come to understand what God's design is for marriage and his purpose and his intent, you understand why adult uh, adultery and being unfaithful in the marriage relationship it's such a big deal to God. It hurts God. It hurts the marriage. And in some ways, um, defeats the purpose of that marriage and why God brought those two people together. And so I can't preach a sermon on not committing adultery if I don't help you understand, first, why God designed marriage and what was his intent for marriage? And just so we're on the same page, I think there's a slide up here uh, on uh, the definition of adultery. Um, the word adultery simply means voluntary sexual intercourse uh, between a married person and another who is not his or her spouse. And so if you have sex 
with someone who is married or if you're married, you have sex with someone who's not married. But either way, that, that intercourse, sexual intercourse, interaction, uh, if it involves a married person who is having sex with someone that is not their spouse, that is adultery. Moving back on the topic of marriage, we are introduced to marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where the text reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God's design for marriage involves a man and a woman, I got to say that, in 2023, right? One man and one woman. If you're familiar with the passage, you know that Adam was created first, and the Word of God says that Adam could not find him a suitable helper, a helper, and so God created the woman. And so God creates this woman and gives him to Adam and says, you two shall become one. shall become one. And so there's a special intimacy there in that marriage relationship that God has created. Then you get to verse 25, and God says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Context clues. They about to get it on. Right? Two naked people who are not ashamed, we know what comes next. And so God says, I created sex for the marriage relationship. The first time we see sex in the word of God is in this passage, which means it is reserved for two people, one man, one woman in the marriage relationship. I tell my young people all the time, God loves sex. Nothing wrong with sex. That's not the argument. That's not the discussion. The problem is we want to do sex on our own terms. God says, get you a wife, get you a husband. You can do it all day long. Just make sure you clock in at work. <laughs> right? But you can do it all day long. All day long. So the problem is not sex. Sex was designed for the marriage relationship. And then we see also in Genesis that God tells this man and this woman that I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And so we see that God's design for the marriage relationship is that this relationship would also be the foundation for human society. God loves children. God loves baby showers. He loves all that. But God's design is that we would have children that come from two parent homes with two people who are married and committed to each other. So he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Have a lot of kids and fill the earth. Good communities are built on good, strong families. There's a quote from a book I'm, I'm reading right now. It says, faithful, healthy marriages are not just good for the family. They are good for the community. Marriage is the foundational relationship in the home from which all others proceed and to which all others look for identity and stability. 
functional marriages, good marriages tend to build functional homes, good homes that require less intervention from the community. And often these homes are capable of giving more than they take, thereby helping the community thrive as a whole. Marriages are good for the community. They build good homes, produce good people, not perfect. But by God's grace, they are to be the foundation of a healthy and functioning society. And this is what we're trying to do here in Fairfield. But if that's not enough to convince you of the purpose and the design and the importance of marriage, go a little further. The word of God says that marriage also points us to the relationship between Jesus Christ and his people. That's pretty cool. God says, I've given you a symbol that you can look at, that you can see. If you want to know how is it that God relates to his people, he says, look at the marriage relationship. The word of God says that we are his people and we are called the bride of Christ. So when you talk about marriage, there's a lot on the line as it relates to the marriage relationship. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chad helped us to understand why we are called to value life. He says uh, in the commandment, commandment number six, God tells us do not murder. And so what he's also saying there is that we are to respect, to value, and to honor human life. But now in commandment number seven, God is telling us, hey, if life is valuable, when he says don't commit adultery, he's saying, I want you to value, honor, and respect human life's most important relationship. The marriage relationship is the foundation. So God is saying, I want you to honor, respect, and value, whether you're married or not. We are called to value and respect and uphold marriage. Sadly, we live in a culture that does not value marriage the way the Bible describes. In some ways, it actually encourages adultery, right? Uh, Adultery seems to be the theme uh, of, of the average television show, right? If somebody ain't getting cheated on, ain't a good TV show. Somebody gotta get cheated on for it to be worthy of watching. Right? Drama. We love drama. But adultery is one of the leading causes for the breakup of families in America today. When adultery takes place, uh, bad things happen. Divorce often follows. Children's lives are ruined. They're affected. Grandparents are hurt, left in confusion. And friends in the community now are forced to look at those people kind of in a weird way, right? It just makes things awkward, right? We don't want it to be that way, but it just does. Simply put, it just makes things messy, and there are usually lots of consequences to follow. Now, we can point to different examples in our culture, maybe even our own lives, celebrities that we know where we've seen this play out, but... The word of God does not leave us hanging as it relates to this topic. The 
Word of God is not trying to hide this from us. And we see the ramifications, right, the consequences of what happens when we disobey the commands of God. In the Old Testament, we have this story of a guy named David. Everybody say David. If you don't know who David is, he's an, he's an important figure in the word of God. Um, David, if you want to say this, his nickname, if you will, or how, we, how, we're, how he's described is a man after God's own heart. The word of God says that David loved God, was submitted to God. And the reason why I share this before I get into the story is because we as Christians, the takeaway from me saying that should be that we should never get to a place where we get comfortable in our walk with the Lord. Your love for God does not erase your ability to sin against God. Your love for God does not erase your ability to sin against God. Deacons, elders, musicians, singers, greeters, that's everybody. And it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God either. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, does not matter. Never get comfortable. So we read this story in 2 Samuel 11. This guy named David, again, great dude. But he sees this woman uh, one day, and this woman is actually not his wife. This woman is actually married. The word of God says he sees this woman, and he says, yo, I want to have sex with her. David is just up front. Right? He's like, yo, I'm just getting to it. So he goes, and he arranges for it to happen. Woman comes to him, and she actually ends up getting pregnant. This woman gets pregnant. But the problem with that is she's a married woman whose husband has actually been away at war, right? So that means if he was to come home, he'd realize if she's pregnant, that's not mine. He don't even need no paternity test. Like, I ain't even been with you. Who is that? Who, whose baby is that? Can't be mine. Right? So that's a problem, right? So David's like, yo, I, this, this, this ain't going to work. I got to clean this up. And so David attempts to clean up his mess, but his ideas don't work. So he resorts to actually having her husband killed so he can now marry this woman, right? To make it look like the baby was actually conceived after they got married. Right? So David was not intending to murder and to get into other sins uh, when he decided to sleep with this woman. But stuff got out of hand and he had to make some things happen. And so what starts with David committing adultery, breaking the seventh commandment, actually turns into him breaking about four more commandments along the way. We see coveting, we see murder, there's lying as David tries to cover up his sin. God obviously sees all, knows all, and David gets in trouble. God judges David. According to the law, David actually was supposed to be killed, but God doesn't kill him. But he does 
judge him. He allows for the baby to die from illness. Not only that, we read, because of David's sin, his beautiful daughter, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother, Amon. Amon Amon was then murdered by Tamar's full brother, Absalom. Absalom came to actually hate his father, David, for his moral failures, failures that that he led a rebellion with the help of Bathsheba's grandfather. And the word of God tells us that David's throne never regained its former stability. So all of these consequences... Right there for us. God is like, I'm not playing. It's right there. This story should not only instruct us, but I believe should put some fear into us. Healthy fear. God is not playing when it comes to sin in general, but sexual sin in particular. I believe if David could see how all of this would have played out, I don't think he would have thought twice about messing with Bathsheba. I don't think he would have thought twice. He did not see what was to come. But this is why we need to know the word of God. Some of you might be sitting in here. If you're unmarried, you're like, man, this sermon, I don't know if it's for me. Maybe you started already uh, Googling where you're going to eat at after church, right? Trying to figure out is, whether it's tzatziki's or barbecue. Stay with me. Please stay with me. <laughs> this, this sermon is for everybody, married people and unmarried people. When Jesus gets on the scene in the New Testament, he's preaching this sermon titled The Sermon on the Mount. You find that sermon in Matthew 5, and in verse 27 through 28, which is, uh, I believe, on the screen. I got a little nervous. Uh, Jesus, referring back to the Ten Commandments, again, knowing that these people have the Old Testament, so they are familiar with the Word of God, he tells them in verse 27, you have heard it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So God says, so Jesus says, that's true. I second that. I don't disagree with that. But in verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is Jesus saying? Similar to what Pastor Chad preached two weeks ago, that murder doesn't begin with the physical act, but it actually begins in the heart when you have the thought. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying here is that sexual purity involves more than avoiding a physical act, but it also involves your heart. Because here's the thing, before David went and got Bathsheba, he thought through what he wanted to do with Bathsheba. He saw her. And he he started having these thoughts. And Jesus says right there in that moment, he was actually guilty. 
This word lust, uh, there may or may not be confusion with it, but I'm going to have to address it and make sure we understand what it means. Um, Lust, right, Jesus says when you look at someone, it's not just the casual glance, right? There's nothing wrong with seeing someone and saying, man, that's a a good-looking person. Nothing wrong with that. Male or female, right? There's nothing wrong with noticing that the person is attractive. But lust is when we, we have that lingering look. You look a little too long. Start staring. You're supposed to be eating your salad and you're looking across the room. Right? It's that you're evaluating the person. Undressing them with your eyes. Some of my fellas know you be walking with your homies and you break your neck. You know what I mean? You at the mall. Hey, Josh, remember back in the day? <laughs> and you walking in the mall. You're like, bro, and you just start bumping into people. Bro, calm down. That's what Jesus is talking about. When you break your neck. If your neck hurt, you lusting. <laughs> if your neck hurt, you are lusting. It's not, it's not just looking. It's okay to look. But Jesus says we, when you lust, when you look at someone the way you should only be looking at your spouse, Those eyes that God has given you are only to be looked at in that way to your spouse. So based on this text, we all can probably say we've been guilty of commandment number seven at one point or another. I couldn't help but notice that Jesus in this in these two verses, uses the word looks. He says, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and I couldn't help but think that about the fact that we live in a culture where it's become normal to do a lot of looking and to not really see it as a big deal. We do a lot of looking. What do I mean by that? Well, from an early age, a lot of us are exposed to pornography, according to the data. It says around 6 in 10 people, which is about 58% of Americans, report having watched pornography at some point in their lives. It's a lot of people watching and looking at things, at people doing things they have no business doing. So looking. What we do with our eyes And then media, right? The TV, there's movies. Everybody knows sex sells. I remember watching the Super Bowl a couple years ago, and I was so mad. It was a Hardee's commercial. Bro, they were promoting a burger. But they used this girl who had her cleavage all out and just was, I was like, how are you trying to get me to eat a burger by showing me a woman? I was like, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? They use sex to try to sell you food. It's everywhere. Most TV shows and movies these days will most likely have some sort of sex scene. To be honest, this actually makes it hard for me to enjoy television. It's me. (laughs) 
My wife will tell you, I can't remember the last time I sat through an entire series. Because uh, nowadays you'll see two things, a lot of sex, and they're trying to push the LGBTQ on you, right? At that point, I'd rather just fall asleep. Like I'll, Rachel will tell you, I can't make it past nothing. To be honest, I think the writing in most of these TV shows are terrible, right? They're not really entertaining, but <laughs> the sex scenes and the LGBTQ stuff, I can't do it. So I barely watch TV. But then I think about social media, right? Another avenue in which we do a lot of looking, scrolling. Listen, I think social media is great. I think it can be a, a very useful tool, right? I love being able to keep up with a bunch of people from high school that I really don't care about, right? <laughs> right? We all love that. Nothing wrong with that. But we have to be honest. These apps can be really dangerous when it comes to the opportunity to lust. We're scrolling and you're looking at images, looking at people wearing things they shouldn't be wearing. And we do this casually without ever really thinking about it. And we, a lot of us don't really see it as a big deal, whether it's in the movies, whether it's in the commercials, whether it's porn, social media, all of this, I, well, I gotta add one more, sexting, right? Holy Spirit said, you gotta bring that up. That's, that's in there. Sending pictures to each other, right, in a, in a relationship. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's not what God intended for that relationship, that it should be reserved for the marriage relationship, the way you look at each other in a certain way and images that you share back and forth. But all of this is considered to be normal behavior in our culture. Uh, people will actually look at you funny if you even probably try to talk about these things as being harmful or sinful. Right? They'd be like, man, dude, you tripping. It's just normal. What's the big deal? But Jesus' words are very clear. It is sin when you look at someone in a way that was only intended for you to look at in a marriage relationship towards your spouse. These thoughts that you have in your mind when you look at people, the way you undress them with your eyes. Word of God says that is adultery. And then you get to the next two verses. Matthew 5, 29 to 30, and Jesus, he doesn't stop right there. He could have, but he did it, but he doesn't. So if you read verse 29, it says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Directly after. Same sermon. Don't stop reading. What are you talking about, Jesus? Help me out. There's been debates. <laughs> PA and I, we've talked about this some. Gone back and forth. I agree with most people who believe that 
Jesus in these two verses are not saying he wants you to cut off your body parts. God is not for self-mutilation. He created the body. The body is good. So don't go home and start cutting stuff off. It's not what Jesus is saying. But what is he saying? I believe that Jesus knows the damage that sexual sin can cause to you and your soul. And he's saying, if you don't deal with it, if you don't take it seriously, it can lead to your destruction. That is what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Not Noah. Please do not come after church and beat me up. Leave me alone. I am a preacher giving you the word of God. I did not say this. What he is saying is you need to take sexual sin seriously. How do we take it seriously? We do whatever we have to do to get rid of it. That's it. That's it. He is telling us that we must deal with sin as drastically and radically as necessary and cut off avenues that we know to be unhelpful to cultivating purity of heart. So if that social media app is causing you to sin, translation, he's saying delete it. That gym membership, some of y'all be working out. You're on, the, you're on the elliptical and you can't keep your eyes off the, the yoga pants or the, the abs next to you or whatever. Jesus is saying, go get a new gym. Or go work out with Sister Karen in the backyard. <laughs> right? It's free. Listen, it's free. And she getting it in. Right? Go get you a Karen, a Karen workout plan. That's what Jesus is saying. If your gym is causing you to stumble, to sin, he didn't say come to church and ask for prayer. He says, no, deal with it. Deal with it. Find another alternative. I'm not saying we, we're not called to pray for each other. Here's what I see in our culture, in our church, not necessarily Urban Hill, but the church at large, is that most people, um, they manage, manage sexual sin. Manage it. What do I mean by manage it? Um, they might see it as an issue, but they don't truly think they can have victory in this particular area, right? <laughs> and so instead of fighting the way Jesus calls us to fight, right, we just put up with it. We say, man, this thing is always going to be here. I look to my left, I look to my right. Everybody's struggling. I guess I'm just going just to give in. Ain't no hope. If you ask me what I see. But the word of God doesn't call us to manage. It actually calls us to mortify. Everybody say mortify. 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 Every time I, I, I say the word, I think of, of Pastor Reader, uh, he just passed away recently, but he was really big on talking about mortification. What does it mean to mortify? It means to put to death. To mortify means to put to death. Colossians 3 verse 5, 
Paul speaking. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's, he's saying, listen, don't be shocked. I know there's some sin in there. <laughs> We're good. We're on the same page. Now what do we do with it? He says, put it to death. Put what to death? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. He's saying, put to death what is not of God. What is sin? I like the fact that he uses the term put to death because it implies that it is possible to kill sin. And, it, and it's possible to have victory. That's what he's saying. If you can put something to death, he's saying you can have victory over it. He's, that's what he's saying. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Whatever you think you're going through, you're not special. It's not unique to you. It's not unique to you. Satan wants you to think that. But it's not true. And he says, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. God says, nah, there's a way out. There's a strategy. There's a plan that you may be able to endure it. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The reality is all have fallen short in this area, myself included. Uh, my prayer is that uh, the sermon would convict you but not necessarily beat you up. But if it does beat you up, it's, it's between you and God. But we've fallen short. And we come on the Lord's Day to confess our sins and the word of God says that Jesus is faithful to forgive if we confess our sins and, he, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Going back to the story of David, if, uh, most people, if you don't know the story, if you started to tell them the story and you let them finish the story, they might would say, man, surely, surely God cut him off. Right, ain't no way God put up with David after all of that. But we see in the word of God that David actually ends up confessing his sins and is actually later restored by God. Restored by God. The question on the table, uh, I found myself asking uh, this question, thinking through it, uh, to be honest, uh, part of me uh, didn't really want to preach this sermon because of this topic, because of how heavy it is, I think. And in some way, it does feel like Satan is winning, not only in the culture, but also in the church. Um, and so what's the answer for victory? What, what should motivate the Christian to fight the fight? And I'm asking myself this question, and I, and I, I hear the Holy Spirit, either the Holy Spirit or Chad, pa Chad's, Pastor Chad's voice in my head, say the gospel. Right? The gospel. I keep hearing the gospel. We've been trying to hammer that on Wednesday nights in Bible study. The gospel. 
the gospel, the gospel. And I'm like, well, what, 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 is, what is it about the gospel, though? We read that the gospel saves, but the gospel actually motivates as well. The gospel not only saves, but it motivates. In the Old Testament, the people of God are actually referred to sometimes as an adulterous people. They claimed to love God, but they were always worshiping other gods. And what we see is that though they are unfaithful, God is faithful to them. He never leaves them. That's what we see in the gospel. A faithful God committed to an unfaithful people. Relentless. Always pursuing. Thinking through the gospel this week, I was led to a passage in Romans 8. Almost done. And thinking about the gospel. What is it about the gospel Paul in Romans 8 is actually in this passage. He's trying to encourage the church who's, who's suffering in persecution. And he encourages them by reminding them of the love of God. Now, now hear this. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even your sin can separate you from his love. Not even your sin. That's how much he loves you. I'm reading this passage and I'm like, I don't deserve to be loved like this. I do not deserve to be committed to like this. <laughs> I know who I am. I know who I used to be. One would ask the question, why, God, why do you love me so much? Why? So much so that nothing, nothing could separate you from his love. That's a promise. What, so what do you do with that? What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Well, the word of God says, with faith first, believe it, it's true. He loves you. But he says, also, if you love me, obey my commands. If you want to know what God's love language is, it's, it's obedience. <laughs> is that one of the love languages? Bob? I don't know if that, but 
But if they threw God in the book, obedience is in there. His love language is obedience. Out of gratitude, we obey him. We seek to be holy people, people who pursue pursue to fight sin with all that we have in us. And like Paul says, we strive to put to death the things that God hates. We strive to put to death the things that God hates. And so my prayer for my generation, your generation, all people in this church, is that we would be a people when tempted with lust or any form of sexual sin, uh, would respond like another biblical figure, a person in the Old Testament, not David, but Joseph. Joseph, in a similar scenario, like David, like David, was tempted to sin against God and commit the sin of adultery. And then some people probably say, man, he probably, he probably deserved to, to sin. He was struggling, had a lot going on. But Joseph says in Genesis 39, verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His eyes were on God. His eyes were on God, not himself. He didn't say, how then can I sin and and, and destroy my life? He said, no, how then can I sin and do this great wickedness against God? Let us all be like Joseph. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us, that emboldens us, um, that strengthens us. Lord, we thank you for your love, Father, that overwhelms us. Uh, Help us, Father, to sit with uh, your love, to sit with the gospel, to sit with uh, your truth. Father, help it. Pray that your spirit would allow it to shower us um, as we sit with it. Uh, And Lord, that it would then empower us, Father, uh, to be obedient, uh, to be faithful. Lord, help us, Lord. We need you. Uh, Our our, our nation needs you. Our church needs you, Lord. We desire to, to glorify you, Lord, in all areas of our lives. Father, we need your spirit. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for your kindness. We pray now, Lord, that you would be with us, that you allow this, allow your word, Father, to sharpen us, to encourage us, um, and to make us, Lord, um, better followers, Father, better disciples for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Urban Hope Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit www.urbanhopecc.com.